Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And this September, we are commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Interstate Commerce Commission's ruling that all interstate bus and train facilities in the U.S. had to pull down signs segregating whites and blacks. And it was the result of a summer-long effort by a group that called themselves the Freedom Riders to test laws that were already on the books but were just largely ignored through many southern states. So picking up where we left off, the original core riders have been badly beaten, traumatized, and essentially evacuated out of Birmingham for New Orleans by a special assistant to Attorney General Robert Kennedy. And it seemed like at this time that the Freedom Ride that had started May 4th, 1961 in D.C. was over at this point. Yeah. Well, and we should we should say, too, like if you are a listener who drops in on random podcasts, it really is worth going back and and checking out that first episode because it'll help give you the context you need for this one since it is a part two. But we left it a real cliffhanger there. That was that was a crucial moment there in New Orleans, defeated, it seems. The Kennedys feel that things are wrapped up to their satisfaction. But then suddenly they get news out of Nashville that things aren't over at all. Right. Students in Nashville, many of them were veterans of the lunch counter sit-ins, though still in their teens and early 20s. They decided that the ride could not end in violence. So spearheaded by Diane Nash, who was a Fisk student, many members of the Nashville student movement decide to skip their finals and go to Alabama. Yeah, get on a bus. And they completely know what's at stake. This is the part that's just crazy to me. They make their wills, these young kids, and they board buses to Birmingham. Nash, who coordinates the whole thing from home base in Nashville, basically tells a Birmingham pastor, we're coming. Yeah, and I mean, the wills is the really shocking part, but the leaving before finals is a really big deal, too, because a lot of these kids are the first members of their family to go to college, but they decide that continuing the Freedom Rides, not letting nonviolence end in violence like this is is more important. So this time, though, the makeup of the riders is a little different from the first ride, which was all staged by the group core. It's still a mix of black and white men and women, and they're taking Greyhound and Trailways buses just like before. But they're all quite young this time. There were middle-aged folks, retired people last time. Most of them now, though, are 19, 20, and there are also a lot more Southerners in the group. So kids from Atlanta and Nashville, of course, Charleston, Tampa, in addition to kids from other parts of the country, New York, Oklahoma, Illinois. It's, it's kind of a more diverse group in that sense. A strange thing happens when they get to Birmingham, though. When the first bus arrives, Commissioner of Public Safety, Bull Connor, who we mentioned in the last podcast, he lets the regular passengers off, covers the window with paper, and then holds the remaining people on board. And finally, after they sweat it out in the May heat for a while, they're let off, and then they proceed to the white waiting area, and they're arrested. That night, they're released from jail and put into cars, which is very ominous. But they drive right to the state line of Alabama and Tennessee, and they're told by Connor to get out and make their way back to Nashville from there. Tennessee State University student Catherine Burks Brooks tells Connor that 
we'll see you back in Birmingham by high noon. So yeah. they're not about to be put down. No, and, and this is still a scary situation, though, that they've just been dropped off in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. They don't know if maybe there's some vigilante group, the Klan, waiting for them on the other side of the border. Bull, Bull Connor is just handing them off or what they're going to do. So they hide. They find shelter with an older couple and by the next day, Nash has arranged from afar a ride for them to get back to Birmingham. And I don't think they make it by noon, but they do make it back the next day. But by the time they're back in Birmingham, the Nashville riders meet the second wave of, of their group. They are, just like last time, different buses traveling into Alabama. But there's a problem besides Bull Connor and the threatening crowd. The bus drivers won't drive. So the riders are stuck there again. They're stuck in Birmingham. And and we mentioned this in the last episode, individual bus drivers refusing to drive because they were afraid they would get their bus set on fire or be beaten or something. But in this case, it's the entire union refusing to drive. So there's really no way out of town again. Yeah. So for the moment, it's looking kind of hopeless. But the Kennedy administration finally pressures Alabama's governor, John Patterson, to promise protection or else face having the National Guard called in. And so Patterson agrees to provide state protection as the riders continue their trip to Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah, we mentioned this American Heritage documentary in the last episode based on Raymond Arsenault's book, and it really contains some great interviews with former Freedom Riders. But it's worth watching, I think, just to see Catherine Burke's Brooks' expression as she recalls feeling relaxed enough to doze on the bus. It's kind of an expression like, what was I thinking, mixed with total disappointment, a little sarcasm thrown in there. It's it's a you should watch it just to see that. But That feeling, that total relaxation, able to fall asleep on the bus feeling, obviously doesn't last very long because in Montgomery, the state protection drops off and they're thinking, well, the city police will pick up protection, but nobody ever comes. So here the bus is just rolling into Montgomery with no one around them. Yeah, and John Siegenthaler, Robert Kennedy's assistant, the man who had been negotiating with the governor about providing state protection, he remembered thinking... Quote, I knew suddenly betrayal, disaster, I hope not death. So he's scared, too, at this point. A mob of more than 200 waits at the Greyhound station for them. The first target this time is the reporters and the cameramen. Because the mob has seen how quickly these pictures get out, not just in the South, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And they don't want that to happen again. So for a sense of what this would have been like for the reporters, Time reporter Calvin Trillin, who took part in the rides as a journalist, recently wrote in The New Yorker that he'd tell his friend, a life photographer, quote, when we get in one of those situations, at best, I don't know you. At worst, I'm one of the people chasing you. Of course, the writers were also very severely beaten. As a white writer, Jim Zwerg was quickly beaten unconscious and kicked in the face. Before going down, though, he remembered seeing men armed with baseball bats, chains, hammers, and this is crazy, even one guy with a pitchfork. So imagine that coming towards you. Burks Brooks remembers women shouting with babies in their arms. It was a spectacle in addition to this really violent scene. And John Lewis, who had been part of the original core ride and had been actually attacked in South Carolina, was hit in the head with a wooden crate. And William Barbie had somebody try to drive a steel rod through his ear. And even Sigenthaler, who is the direct representative to the president, was hit with a pipe trying to help one of the female Freedom Riders 
and he was knocked unconscious. So finally, the police arrived. They broke up the crowd with tear gas. So the next day, May 21st, sort of marks a turning point for the Freedom Rides. The riders and 1,500 supporters filled the First Baptist Church in Montgomery for a meeting. And by this point, Martin Luther King and the larger movement really had to get involved and stand behind the riders, even though, as we mentioned before, many were ambivalent about the ride initially or even thought it would come out hurting the movement. But after the violence that had had happened, they they had to all stand together and and support the ride. And so Martin Luther King actually comes down to Montgomery to uh, meet up with everyone here at the church. Outside the church, though, a mob of 3,000 gathers, and they're breaking windows, threatening to burn down the church. The marshals that are set in to control the crowd are just random federal workers. They disperse tear gas with the wind blowing toward them and end up having to run away. Yeah, they just have little patches on their sleeves, not even uniforms. So... After that, there's this night of phone calls. Martin Luther King is on the phone with Robert Kennedy trying to get him to do something. Robert Kennedy is on the phone with Patterson trying to get him to act. Martin Luther King even even gathers up a group of committed nonviolent volunteers to leave the church and dissuade a group of black cab drivers from using violence against the mob. So they're still trying to stick to their principle of nonviolence here. It's the best way for them to hopefully get out of this situation, too. So finally, the governor puts the city under martial law and people in the church are free. You know, the crowd is broken up. They're free to go. And the Freedom Riders are also free to continue under the protection this time of the Alabama National Guard. So they hit the road heading toward Mississippi. And at the border, the Mississippi National Guard takes over with commands to take the bus right on through to Jackson. No stops, no trouble. And it kind of seems like they're out of the frying pan into the fire here because Mississippi was considered the most dangerous southern state. You can hear them talking about how as bad as Alabama had had been for them, Mississippi seemed like there might be worse things waiting. And there were scary signs right across the border. There were signs that said things like, quote, prepare to meet thy God. So it looked like it was going to be as bad as they thought it was going to be. But response that they get there is quite different from Alabama's messy mob violence. According to Trillin, the former Time reporter, Mississippi's Citizens Council and State Sovereignty Commission wanted to avoid national news scandals and presidential interference, too. And the president and attorney general wanted to avoid the violence and beatings on the national news. So they made this compromise. Instead of mob violence, there would be an organized rapid police response. So what does that mean? This basically means that the first riders from Trailways disembarked the bus went to the White's waiting room and were asked to leave politely. And after they refused, they were arrested. And this happened again with the Greyhound bus. The charges against them are things like breach of peace. Yeah, so it's this very orderly, nonviolent... Comparatively calm. Yeah, maybe even (laughs) disturbingly calm. I don't know after what they've gone through. But from there, they'd be quickly processed and sent through court, put into the city jail, and then eventually shipped off not just to any old prison, but to the state penitentiary, Parchman State Prison Farm, which was one of the most notorious prisons in the country. Just a little side note, even if you don't know about Parchman, 
You've probably heard about it if you've listened really carefully to blues or folk recordings, because in the 1930s, Alan Lomax recorded singers and bluesmen for the Library of Congress singing really sad songs about how hard life was in Parchman. But the Freedom Riders didn't have the expected reaction that all the authorities in Mississippi thought they would have. They thought that they would just post bail, get out, and not get come back. Yeah, get out of town. But instead, they take up the slogan, jail, no bail, and resolve to fill up the prison and clog up their system. So busloads of them just keep coming through that summer, even though on May 29th, Robert Kennedy petitioned the Interstate Commerce Commission to prohibit segregation and interstate bus travel and pleaded with the writers to take a cooling off period while the request was processed. So he was basically like, "Okay, we're trying to put this through. Can you guys please stop for a little while? He was encouraging them to shift their attention to voter registration, you know, something something to work on. Please let this go. But they were completely unwilling to do that. They rejected the cooling off period and instead the rides intensified. Ultimately, 300 of the 436 Freedom Riders ended up at Parchman Prison. And finally, by September 22nd, the anniversary we are commemorating here, the ICC issued the order that all segregated signs would come down at interstate bus and train terminals. Um, and we've got to talk about the the effect of the rides and and what people thought at the time, since they were kind of unpopular at the beginning, even within the movement. According to the New Yorker article we mentioned earlier, a 1961 Gallup poll showed that only one in four Americans approved of the rides. But after the victory, it was clear that they had accomplished something. They had been effective. Yeah, so they saw that nonviolent activism could really work. According to a Smithsonian article by Marion Smith Holmes, the New York Times, for example, which was formerly critical of the rides, they admitted that the Freedom Riders, quote, started the chain of events which resulted in the new ICC order. It also had the effect of empowering young student leaders in the movement and of forcing ties between the Kennedy administration and civil rights leaders. Exactly. Those late night phone calls we were talking about where Martin Luther King is is calling up the Kennedys and uh, all of these 19 year olds, 20 year olds who decide to leave school during their exams and and go out and do this. But in addition to Raymond Arsenault's book and that American Experience documentary that is inspired by it, there is just so much on this story. It's a really it's a really great one if you want to do some research yourself and get even deeper into it. There are countless interviews and articles by former writers and politicians and journalists and there's a great photographic record too. And I wanted to just talk about that a little bit more because I think it's so interesting. So there aren't just images of the violent beatings and the burning buses and the segregated waiting rooms, those images that really went across international newspaper headlines. There are also kind of more personal images, too. So in 2002, the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission was forced to open its archives after this lengthy, like multi-decade-long lawsuit with the American Civil Liberties Union. And after that, 300 mugshots of the Freedom Riders became available for the first time. And an editor named Eric Etheridge decided to, he was really 
moved by all of these photos of these people who have been arrested and kind of have these defiant looks. Some of them are almost smiling. Some of them have clearly been roughed up. But he decided to seek out the Freedom Riders that were photographed and re-photograph them since they would, of course, all be mature adults by that point. And he just cold called them. He told Smithsonian that his, quote, best icebreaker was, I have your mugshot from 1961. Have you ever seen it? a very cool story. He got a lot of photos, made a book out of it, and it is really interesting to to see what these people went on to do with the rest of their lives after after doing something like this, maybe when they're only 19 years old. Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine that it was thrilling to call them and maybe meet them. I mean, these people, no matter what you think about their strategy, how they went about what they did, they were uniquely brave people. Yeah, and to find out how many of them were still involved in activism or had continued work that seemed really fitting for somebody who was a former Freedom Rider, somebody who would go out and and do this. So while we are done talking about the Freedom Rides in the American South, we're not quite done with this topic because people in Australia were motivated also in the 1960s to stage their own Freedom Rides. And that's going to get its whole own episode next time we talk. So stay tuned if you want to learn a little bit more about the Freedom Rides. You can also suggest other civil rights topics or maybe you're getting ready for Australia. You could send other Australian topics to us uh, by emailing us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and we are on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the topics discussed today, we have an article called How the ACLU Works and you can find it on our website by going to our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.